important is that North American connection? Uh, I mean, it, it, it's huge for us because the more that we can build a team, the more comfortable we are over here in Europe together. And uh, I think it's really fun to uh, give the Europeans a challenge. American Keegan Randall celebrates a sprint win Up today. There's Steven coming through, the first of the Americans. Jesse Dickens of the United States gets the bronze for the U.S. I can't stop smiling. At the center of these results is an athlete. And oftentimes, if they're good, at the center of these athletes is a coach that treats them like people. Matt Whitcomb is exactly that coach, who with his holistic approach has been instrumental in the rise of US women's cross-country skiing. Hi, Chad. This is US cross-country skier, Sophie Caldwell. Matt reminds us how important it is to be part of something greater than ourselves. And I think that concept um, has allowed us to really fully buy into this dream that we could be one of the best in the world individually, but most importantly, as a team. When I was young, there was Bill Coke. That's it. Of course, there was more than just Koki to cross-country skiing in America. Great teammates backing him up. Tim Caldwell, Jim Galanis, Dan Simino, the Koki, Timmy, Jimmy, and Simmy quartet that had so much success in the early 1980s. And great coaches, Mike Gallagher and Marty Hall backing them up as well. But that took insider information to know about. For a 13-year-old kid starting ski racing on the Iron Range of Minnesota, I knew about Bill Koch, and that was it. Today, it's Jesse Diggins, or Keegan Randall, or Rosie Brennan, or Sadie Maubay Bjornsson. The top layer is there in the U.S. cross-country skiing for all to see. And bubbling to the surface are several other U.S. women, six of whom has stood on the World Cup podium. Our guest today is one of many, and he'll be the first to tell you that, who helped engineer the environment that has U.S. cross-country skiing headed in the right direction, and in fact, already at near the top of the sport. A coach from a successful nation in the sport told my brother that taking a pile of shit and making it into a whip is impressive, but making that whip crack is where it really turns into something special. Matt Whitcomb has been cracking the whip for over a decade as the coach of the U.S. ski team. So much so that we're prone to forgetting where we were as a ski racing nation just 20 years ago. In my day, we celebrated a single top 20 finish in the season in any one of the Nordic disciplines, cross country, Nordic combined, or biathlon. Now, each one of those sports has since posted an Olympic or world champion from the United States, something that frankly wasn't conceivable in my teens and 20s. He'll defer to so much great work done by so many other people across the country, but if you've been in this community, you know Matt Wickham has been at the center of the storm, and in the most figurative way is the person who has been holding that whip that has cracked so many times now. Matt joined the U.S. ski team staff about the time that the U.S. was moving towards a club-based system and committing to having a viable women's team. This is Ferry Caldwell, Matt's high school coach at Stratton Mountain School. And he now coaches my daughter, Sophie. Matt has the unique ability of being able to treat each person individually while bringing the whole group together to truly work and improve as a team. I believe Matt's role has been instrumental in the positive trajectory of U.S. skiing. I think he has this way of inspiring people and making them feel valued that I think helped to kind of catapult 
our U.S. team to being one of the best teams in the world. As the U.S. ski team heads into the World Championships in Oberstdorf, Germany, we wanted to introduce you to Matt Whitcomb, if you haven't heard of him already. He's a bit of a skier whisperer by reputation. The man who has essentially created the spiritual environment that has cracked so much success and headlines for this team. And Keegan Randall coming home to become the Freestyle Skate Team Sprint Champions of 2013. Jesse Dickens of the United States gets the bronze for the U.S. It's Rosie Brennan of the United States out in front. And while he's certainly been a leader who has inspired countless numbers of athletes, coaches, parents. And this is Simi Hamilton on the U.S. men's cross-country team. I think one of the most important qualities as a coach is his ability to decipher how a specific athlete ticks and figure out exactly what he can do to help them maximize their potential. Matt is a good college friend of mine. Maybe I should have seen his brilliance as a future team leader coming 20 years ago in Middlebury Ski Team van trips, but I didn't see it. I knew he was a great guy with a solid head on his shoulders and his heart in the right place all the time, but I couldn't have predicted what he'd go on to do and what he would come to mean to international ski racing success for the United States. Even being as close as I am to Matt, I don't know all the things between college graduation 21 years ago and what Matt has done to get him to where he is today. I'm excited for what we might uncover with him as our guest, U.S. Ski Team Coach, Matt Whitcomb. Welcome to Threshold. I'm super excited to sit down and, and have this conversation with you because um, we, you know, we've both done a lot in the sport over the last 20 years, and you've done certainly more than I have. And, and uh, it's just, it's just going to be nice to kind of like turn over a few rocks. So thanks for coming. Thanks a lot, Chad. It's, uh, it's awesome to be here. Where I wanted to get started with, so I know a little bit about your early years, but I want to get, I want to start at the beginning just briefly. How did you get into skiing and then ski racing? Yeah, those are some of my uh, most vivid memories, actually the ones that are the most distant. And uh, we just happened to, by chance, have this amazing cross-country ski area two miles up the road called Hickory Hill. And as a kid, I just took a liking to skis. There wasn't much to do out in the woods. And I, I skied to school and we actually would pop our three pin bindings off and stick them in the snowbank right outside Russell H. Conwell school. And nothing makes me prouder than to think of those skis just sticking in that snowbank. <laughs> yeah. Almost like a Scandinavian kid. It, it felt, yeah, exactly. It felt, it, uh, it just felt so wholesome and the snow in those memories was so deep. Yeah, that's great. Uh, was there anyone in particular who kind of formed your early skiing experiences? Be you know your par- your parents obviously, but but beyond that, like getting into ski racing, uh, you know who who are those who are those key players for you? Yeah, that's a. I mean, of course you have to say the parents, as you suggested. Uh, I mean, <laughs> they spent all their money on on us on skiing. You know, they're both school teachers, and uh, we just sort of took it for granted every year, getting <laughs> a, a new pair of skis or two, and. And always having a race suit and the ski passes taken care of. And we didn't need much else, but it was a huge commitment. So uh, to them, oh, I owe the biggest thanks. But uh, my, my first coach, uh, this guy named Ed Hamill, he, uh, Ed and Mary, uh, basically ran cross-country skiing in western Massachusetts. And they started the Bill Coke League. And we had um, all these different groups. And Ed really understood the value of having fun. He was only in it to have fun himself and to make sure that we all had fun. He had a couple kids in it and uh, just hold that those memories and that league and the work that Ed and Mary put into it 
so close to my heart. So thinking back to Ed, I mean, you know, those are your formative years. Um, what were some of the things that you learned as a kid from, from all the people, from all your mentors, from Ed, from Mary, from your family? What are some of the things that still stick with you as a national team coach today? I think it's probably something to do with group dynamics. Uh, not just that, but to learn how to talk to adults and to um, interface with all of the parents who were so heavily involved in our youth ski league. And if there's something else beyond that, it was how, how, how addictive fun is for a kid. And I can remember nothing about what I learned in school, but I can remember vividly wanting so badly to get out of school so that I could go back to my group, to my, to my team, to this tribe. And we would just be released into the forest with Ed uh, for hours, you know, multiple times a week. And we learned not just about group dynamics and having fun together, but we learned how to uh, harness immense amount of pain. And Wednesdays were called Bus Butt Wednesdays, where we just find the biggest hill and we just go up and down it until uh, we couldn't anymore. That's right. That's right. Let's jump ahead a little bit. So, um, you know, we skied together. Well, well, you you skied. I kind of tried to ski <laughs> at Middlebury. Uh, we were on the team together over 20 years ago now. It seems like it doesn't seem like that long ago. It seems like yesterday, but um, it was around the turn of the millennium. And 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 I believe you know. And this is where I'm a little bit foggy on the details. Of, of the timing of your ascent into coaching, you know, at, at the national level. You, I believe you went right at, to Burke Academy. Is that right? I, I spent all my summers between uh, years at Middlebury out in Bend, Oregon. That's right. I did a little bit of uh, volunteer coaching for the, for the teams out there uh, with working with Ben Huseby. And uh, Ben taught me, uh, you know, more of what Ed taught me as a kid. And, uh, but there wasn't really a job there for me that winter, so I moved out to Whitefish, Montana. So uh, from there, you explain explain what happened with Berkeley. How did you end up at Burke Academy? I knew the coach who was on his way out, and he was looking to recruit somebody. Uh, he was actually uh, coaching Ed Hamill's daughter at Burke Mountain Academy. But essentially, uh, I got offered that job and, and spent the next four years at Burke Mountain Academy. So that was 2002 to 2006. Okay. And at that time, you had a couple of really really up-and-coming athletes who ended up being Olympians and big star, big stars for the United States internationally, Liz Steven and Ida Sargent. Was that, was that sort of your, was that sort of your uh, threshold into the U.S. ski team coaching staff? Oh, absolutely. I don't think there are many of us coaches that uh, got where we were because we were actually good at what we did. I think we, <laughs> I think we got dealt a few good face cards and, uh, and won a few early hands. And uh, that is absolutely how the doors opened. And I'm thankful for the for those hardworking athletes. Well, that's that's our first glimpse into the Oshucks Matt Whitcomb persona uh, <laughs> that I know so well. Um, but 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 you know as well as I do that that talented athletes open doors for coaches, but also coaches who do well with talented athletes open doors for themselves. And and I think that we have to acknowledge that. You know, you what year did you go? You went there in 2007. Was that about the time you started with the ski team? Yeah. Uh, Right after Torino, 2006. Okay. And who recognized you should be part of the staff? Like, who hired you? Who tapped you for that job? You know, I remember uh, being at Nationals in 04, 05, or maybe 05, 06, and uh, talking with Luke Bodensteiner on the deck uh, after uh, Liz had won a national championship race, and Ida had made World Juniors, and he just said, hey, you got to work for the national team someday. And that was the first time I'd ever really considered it. I had always considered wanting to be on the national team as an athlete. And that ship had sailed um, the day I received my jeans. 
<laughs> but, uh, but you know, I remember really vividly exactly where Luke was standing, where I was standing, because it hit me. It's like, wow, this could actually be a career. Um, that season, uh, 06, after Torino, Pete Bordenberg became the head coach of the team. And Pete is just like another Ed Hamill. Just right. everything he touches works. Right. Uh, everything they touch is creative and exciting and motivating and inspired. Right. And, uh, and so, so I've already hired me and Pat Casey, uh, my partner in crime, and we were given the development team. And we did that for four or five years. You're coming into a national team that really hasn't had a lot of international success. It's not like you know at that age what, what it's going to take to have international success. But, but clearly, uh, looking back from today to that time, um, what about the organization and U.S. skiing in general when you took that national team job? What were some things that, that may, if at all, did anything jump out at you and said, you know, this could, this could use some improvement? or You know, before I had been offered the job uh, and had that role pitched to me, uh, I had plenty. And it was to kind of solve the issue of this elite band of mystery men. And, you know, there's nothing uh, against those great guys who were on the team then. Uh, I think it was Swenson, Johnson. Freeman, uh, you know, Cook, Coos, uh, and, and a handful of others, but it was, and, and maybe Keegan right. <laughs> as, the, as the lone woman. But uh, there wasn't a whole lot of interfacing. There wasn't a great development program that brought athletes to clubs. And when Pete called me in the spring of 2006 and pitched his vision, he solved essentially every issue that I had ever had with the national team structure. And it was like, this already blossomed vision uh, and now we just had to build it so so what specifically at that time did you think you that you and pete needed to build like what were some of the things that you guys sat down and said you know this is what we've got to change yeah we needed we needed more athletes <laughs> yeah and, and we needed more money mm-hmm. and uh because we have to hire the coaches and you know, if you have five coaches uh, that are each making, uh, you know, close to, I don't know, dollars $50,000 a year, that's suddenly, uh, you know, you're well on your way to a half a million dollars pretty right, soon. Right, right. But we also needed a lot of young athletes and we needed some parity uh, between the genders. So we had a development team of about 12 athletes that year. And I think the World Cup team was maybe six. Pat and I had our hands full with quite a few athletes. Yeah. So I want, I want to get in a little bit into the the um the way that things started to go the right way because they clearly have it takes time we know it's it's taken time it's not like it happened overnight um but what what do you see as some of the factors you've had to manage over your career from that time you started to now both domestic and international internationally to bring about the results that you're getting now as a team yeah really it it comes down uh to having people that want to do it well and for a long time and so that can be reduced to uh, motivation we need inspiration and uh, you know when you think of Ed Hamill you think of that smile and that sense of adventure when you think of Pete Vordenberg you think of goosebumps and inspiration and wanting to stand up and and cheer before he's done with his speech and so what Pete does is he gets you to believe and when humans believe in something humans get that thing and and that was our that was our deal i mean and in some ways that was also a little bit of our kryptonite because we wanted so badly that maybe we focused 
a little bit too much on results going into Vancouver. So after four years of being very re, uh, process driven, uh, I think that first Olympics came up and we believed already that we could get that at the time. What was it? It was a 36 year monkey off our backs or something <laughs> yeah. like that, that, yeah, that yeah. Uh, Koki uh, sort of kicked off. But that is still my number one thing that I try and accomplish every day is uh, ensuring that my level of motivation is there and what I'm effervescing is, is in some way inspiring. Uh, if you had to, yeah, that's what, that's what I want to ask is, is if you had to size up in a sentence or two, what you yourself have tried to do in your position at the USG team from day one, is that the top of the list? Just motivating or, or, or is there something else? I think I try, uh, I absolutely try and be motivating. That's, that's, I think something that comes natural to me. Um, it's something that when I watched Pete at these camps, at these REG camps and at these national team camps, I quickly thought to myself, wow, this this feels like my bag, like, uh, and it doesn't need to be standing up and, and giving a motivational speech, but it can be just simply talking down or sitting down and talking with somebody, um, and locking in and, and getting motivated in that way. Um, so that was, that was certainly one thing, but I think what I try and do, and, and I haven't always been able to accomplish this with every athlete because of the way human chemistry works and clashes and, and combines and but it, it's uh, to be to be trusted and to uh, be a non-judgmental coach that makes athletes feel safe and that creates teams and working environments that are essentially circles of safety From from going going from the the motivational the spirit of sport to the te- to the technical the the day in day out monotony the travel the excitement of travel the 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 wear and tear of travel what are the logistical things that you're taking care of every day to make sure that the athletes have the the environment to succeed uh, in your current situation in Davos or in you know in Oberstdorf in, in a week yeah okay well let's let's run through today and and I'll say like. <clears throat> Uh, this better not come off as as well as me because I, I have uh, I have a better job than anybody who's listening <laughs> right here. Okay, <laughs> it's a logistical puzzle each day. Uh, we have seventeen athletes here, but then we also have uh, a PT, a doctor, a wax tech, and three coaches that also need skis. And so that's like twenty four pairs of skis that need to be prepared each morning. Athletes walk downstairs, and so they do not have to spend time in the wax room. And so from eight until 925 uh the four of us are down there just just cranking out skis and um that's just training that's just a training day that's just that's just that's just train yeah and that's the first workout but then we also have two pods here one pod is the people that just came in from vokati or uh however you would say that uh finland and u23 championships world juniors u23s we need to keep them separate from the group that has just come in from ulrisaham so we have two different breakfasts two different lunches two different dinners we have three vans but athletes in each pod are not allowed to ride in vans with the other athletes until we have gotten through this kind of acute phase where at which point we can blend. And so when everybody arrived, we got PCR tests to make sure we weren't dragging something in, but we don't automatically blend. We wait another five days to make sure any symptoms don't arise. Uh, this afternoon at 3 p.m., we had 
uh, antigen tests for all the athletes that came in from U23s. So we had uh, eight athletes, six, six athletes, two coaches that needed antigen tests at the local hospital. And 10 minutes after they got tested, we had uh, the other 15 of us that needed PCR tests so that we could just pass our own team standards um, outside of what FIS is requiring. Now tomorrow we have our tests that are required for us to get into Germany. We need a PCR test within 48 hours of crossing into Germany, plus a whole series of forms, letters from the U.S. Olympic Committee, invitations from Oberstdorf World Championships OC, uh, invitations from the hotel, from the German federal government, and it's just a circus. <laughs> I was going to say, you're making me exhausted. You're making me exhausted just going through that list. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot just a little bit. Uh, um, anyone who follows you on Twitter knows that a free, frequent hashtag on your posts is hashtag we compete clean. Um, from your vantage point, how fair is the playing field in terms of use of illegal means to elicit top performance? Important question. Uh, of course, I don't know the actual answer, but here's what I think. I think the women's field is very clean. I think it's more clean than the men's field. And I think the men's field is very clean compared to cycling. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the day that I do not trust the athletes on our team and the coaches that I work with uh, to continue to compete ethically, I'll be looking for another team that does. And uh, for whatever reason, probably comes back to my parents, uh, fair play and competing ethically. And that's not just uh, not sticking needles in your arms and taking illegal substances, but it's like not cutting in line, not being <laughs> a jerk, you know, right. not cheating. Right. Uh, you know, I don't need to, I need to earn things just the same way other people do. I, I'm not going to take a shortcut. And so I'm, I'm so offended by the whole concept of doping, but I'm also uh, uh, pretty aware that my first world perspective, uh, having parents that will bail me out if I have no job one day, you know, I have a very uh, safe life. Uh, whereas some, some athletes who choose to go down the road of doping, um, they're trying to save their family. They're, they're trying to uh, make a name for themselves because if they don't subscribe to their coach's doping program, then that coach will find somebody who will, and they'll be, um, they'll be back looking for another job. So I get the difference. But uh, as long as I'm running the American team, uh, you may occasionally see an athlete uh, fill out their uh, whereabouts forms wrong and have a missed test because of that. But you will never see us taking steroids or uh, erythropoietin or anything along those lines. Uh, I'm just going to follow up on that on that thought. Um, I've always seen sport as it gets held up to the light as kind of spanning the spectrum of the best and worst of human nature. Um, I think at this late date, we all understand some human beings have a propensity to and will continue to cheat to win for different reasons, as you point out. Um, but you are committed to creating an environment in which cheating is fundamentally not part of your journey. But uh, you're still getting wins as a team, which is which is obviously awesome. Um, but what do you say to those doubting out loud on social media or or anywhere that the U.S. ski team can win against presumably enhanced performances from equally talented athletes 
who may be cheating. How how are you winning clean against anyone who isn't? You know, it, it's uh, I'm in a I'm in a unique position, um, and I have a unique perspective because I've had the chance to watch athletes uh, rise to the World Cup podium over the course of eight years, and I've also seen them do it over the course of two years. And uh, before my time coaching these athletes, I wonder if I would have looked at those meteoric rises as suspicious. And I'm not sure. Um, having coached them and seen why these rises happen, um, they happen for, a, for myriad reasons. Um, getting in shape is such a nebulous concept. <laughs> it has a little bit to do with training a little bit to do with uh, psychology and nutrition and body weight and uh, mindset and this whole other realm of things that we can't see because it's chemistry. So, uh, you know, I think the perspective that I have that is unique is that I get to, I get a chance to work, to work with Jesse Diggins every single day. Um, and it would be absolutely impossible for anyone on our team in the quarters that we live in to get away with doping. Mm -hmm. They couldn't do it. I'm too smart. <laughs> I, can, I, I can read what you are thinking socially. You know, it's like that level of suspicion, uh, unless it exists across the entire team throughout the whole group as a, as a, as their culture, it's going to stand out on our team and we're not doing it. We won't do it now. We'll never do it. Uh, so, but you know, the interesting thing, Chad, is that uh, we have to think about revisiting this. You know, I, well, I won't say who this was, but a, a former former mentor of mine once told the national team athletes and coaches that anybody who doped on this team uh, would be murdered. <laughs> and any, I, I, I know who it is. <laughs> we, yeah, of course, you do. You know, we all sort of like laughed a little bit, and then we looked. <laughs> Uh, at this individual, and he wasn't kidding. <laughs> there wasn't a smirk on his face, I and I mean, it was one of the more inspired moments in my life. Um, ironically, having to do with murder, but uh, you know, it was like what it was was just belief in ethics, right. and we all heard it. But humans are imperfect, right. and we have a tendency to cheat. And it was one of my favorite books. Is I think it's called The Righteous Mind by this guy Jonathan Haidt. And somewhere in there, he brings up a study where uh, a bunch of humans went through this psychology experiment or sociology experiment at the cash register, and they were given the incorrect amount of change. And what they discovered that was that like something like 50 or 60% of humans, when given the chance to cheat just a little bit, if they knew there was no chance for them to be caught, they would do it. And when I read that, I felt like I understood the doping world a little bit more clearly. And so this is not something that is uh, unique to American cross-country skiing. This is unique to American cross-country skiing right now. And it can be gone next year if we don't stay on top of our ethics in our, in our, in our team culture. Absolutely, yeah. So, so if, if anybody asks me, uh, how do we keep this going? I say to all the coaches out there, regardless of who they are coaching, uh, even three-year-olds, Start by teaching ethics before technique. <laughs> teach that shortcuts aren't to be taken before you teach about intervals and over distance workouts.
All right, lightening things up a little bit just to close it out. Uh, I know you're busy. Want to get you on that, get you back doing what you do. Um, you kind of hit on it earlier. As as a coach traveling around the world, it's sometimes to beautiful mountain settings. Your your life and job can appear pretty idyllic, you know, particularly to anyone who loves to travel in romantic settings. So what is the favorite non-skiing side benefit to you personally uh, in your job? That's a good question. Um, That's an impossible question. (laughs) You know, I don't know if this counts as non-skiing, but what I realized is that um, what differentiates me from most of my friends, but most of them only have American friends. And I have (laughs) this wild mix of friends that span all of these teams. Most of them are probably coaches and wax technicians, and I'm I'm friends with plenty of the Russian team. Uh, But some of them are athletes. You know, this is a, it's such a small family that is World Cup skiing, that if you take a moment to slow down and have the confidence to do it and to square up with somebody from Norway, and say, hey, how you doing? Like we did this spring with Shurota and asked him if he would do an interview with us. And he said, and, I, and we said, hey, this is going to be to help our men's team. We want to learn from you. And he was like, yep, I'm in. What are you paying? Nothing. Then I'm definitely in. You know, <laughs> and it's just, it's that kind of interaction that you experience kind of day in and day out that has nothing to do with skiing on the World Cup. Um, that I really treasure and keeps me coming back. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it's, uh, sitting in the back of one of these tour buses, uh, on the way to the airport, uh, after the last race of the season, sipping, uh, Bolshinov's father's vodka out of a camelback <laughs> of one of their wax techs. You know, that's probably where COVID started, but, <laughs> but that's an experience that, happens and it just doesn't happen <laughs> to me if I were a school teacher <laughs> and it's just uh but the school teachers also are married and have uh, these beautiful families and I'm a single 42 year old just rolling around the world so that leads me to the next to the final question what's the least favorite thing about your lifestyle I think it's time away from my family my my brother Jake sister Kate mom and dad um you know, I'm, I'm aware of how many days I, I have left on this planet with the people that I love. And you just never know when you're down to just a handful uh, with some of them. And, and that really bugs me. Time away from home, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy just about anywhere. But when I'm home, I am at my center. Okay. One non-American skier you most identify with? Sure, Rota. And, uh, and I brought him up in the interview we uh, did with him last year just because uh, I approached him because I had heard, I, I overheard him talking with Simi about something training and philosophically related on the bus when we were in Aura last year. And I was just like, wow, I wish I could record that. And so we did. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and everything that comes out of that guy's mouth is just, uh, it's funny and it just makes good sense. And it, 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 there's no question why he's a world and Olympic champion. And, and your your interaction with Shiruta, it's amazing how, like, I, I doubt Shiru knows how far that went in your mind um, in, in, in uh, making him the guy you most relate with. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I, 
I saw him for the first time this year in Falun. And when I saw him for the first time, he asked me how the house was coming. You know, and this was like a a quarter of a sentence that that we talked about our our personal lives before getting into the interview. And he just kind of remembered that. Uh, You know, he is uh, someone who connects. And for me as a coach, uh, enabling human connection is kind of the ticket to long careers and fast careers and happy lives. So uh, heading into heading into the world championships now, um, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask you for predictions or anything, but what do you feel will be um, a measure of success for you and the team? I'm incredibly passionate this year about, and, and have been for years, but about men's skiing. Um, and I feel uh, okay saying that. And it feels fair to me because I was also women's coach for eight years. And <clears throat> I feel like for the first year, uh, we've always had great guys on the team. And I, I don't mean just fast. I mean, really just great people. Uh, but we as coaches have never been able to pull them together, their clubs, their programs, the chemistry that made up every athlete on the team and the coaches on the team, and get it to gel quite like we were able to with the women's team. And a lot of this is just about the cards you're dealt. You know, humans are tricky. You don't just automatically get together because you have a coach that says, hey, we're going to be good teammates. Let's go. It's so much more complicated than that. It's so difficult. Um, But it comes down to just being a concerted effort. And this year, every guy, including all the young guys, are just bought into it. And I'm, I'm so excited to see it come to fruition in the future. This year will be the beginning of it. So I don't know what we'll see this year uh, at World Champs, but whatever it is, it will be the beginning of this new age of, of men's skiing that has everything also to do with the veterans of the past. I mean, they are a part of this push. It, it, it has come together because of everybody that's been involved. But for me, uh, as a team player, uh, the relays, that's my jam. You know, team sprint, okay. It's a little exclusive for me. I'd like to see... Uh, more people able to race that, but the the four by five and the four by ten, that's like Christmas for me. <laughs> it's uh, you know, and we've been dead last in those events. We've been on the podium in those events, and each of those days are equally memorable. Yeah, I'm excited for that as well. I get I, I, I don't know if you've heard, but I, I get to call the World Championships for the first time in my announcing career. And oh, I'm psyched. I, and we're gonna have so to is everybody. It. And, and Keegan is going to be uh, is going to be on with us via Skype for uh, for insight on on that day. So it's pretty exciting. That's if if we don't have her skiing the third leg. <laughs> I don't think. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be great. I, I'm really excited, Matt. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're. I listened to your schedule and I, I was feeling guilty, but it, it, you know I. I had to take the I had to take the moment when I had it because it took 20 years for us to sit down as former <laughs> college buddies and, and have this conversation. And 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 one of these days, whether I'm still here in Uvescula or in Duluth, you're going to come and visit us and meet my kids and meet my wife, and we're going to go fishing. I would love that. I even though I hate even though I hate fishing, I'll do it for you. <laughs> I would I would I'll, I'll accept that date right now. Okay, cool. Yeah. You know, but I mean, Chad. This is, this is to me what, what ski coaching is. I mean, you talk about all these uh, duties that coaches have to do during the day, but really what we have to do is exactly this. We talk to 
people who are equally equally passionate about something. And uh, there's nothing more inspiring is just feeling like you're facing in the same direction as those that surround you. And so yeah. that's the, the days are easy. I can't think of a better way to end this uh, interview with you, Matt. Thanks hey. for everything. Good luck going into Oberstdorf and, uh, and we'll see you down the road. I love you, man. Thanks. You can see why I scheduled Matt as one of my early guests on Threshold. Uh, I'm not sure why my instincts immediately went to Matt when I conceptualized the, the podcast, but they did. And I think part of me was looking for that holy grail of human success story. Um, but halfway through, I realized, listening to Matt, that he's still just Matt, the guy I knew in college. Nothing has changed, and you know, it shouldn't have. He's certainly learned a lot since college, don't get me wrong, but his successes clearly don't stem primarily from something he's learned. They come from somewhere beyond learning, I think. And it reminds me of Anatoly Tarasov. And I get it with the, there's going to be some irony to this because I'm, I'm using a Russian coach in a Soviet system uh, amongst the headlines of Russian corruption. But, but hear me out on this. Um, Anatoly Tarasov, if you don't know who he is, just Google Anatoly Tarasov's Soviet hockey. There's some great books, some great articles, some great documentaries that are really accessible and easy to hear the story of Tarasov and Soviet hockey. But um, Tarasov was what the Jewish culture would call a mensch. In the West, uh, in that time in the 70s and 80s, we were led to believe Soviet hockey was kind of a manifestation of evil. At least that's the way our media painted out, that the athletes were subjugated to um, indecency and, 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 and uh, a very tough life, which is maybe partially even true. But the fact of the matter is um, those skaters with the USSR on their chests who dominated and intimidated us in the 1970s and 1980s and whom we celebrated the defeat of in the 1980 Olympics and came to the NHL a decade later to the booze of many really fundamentally were a result of Tarasov's love and passion for the sport of hockey and, the, and those people, those athletes. His work ultimately was hidden from the world. In its place, the Soviet system put in a stern-faced Viktor Tikhonov, a much less sympathetic or beloved or inspirational uh, character to the actual players who made those teams great. Uh, the grim reality of life in the Soviet Union really didn't coax the greatness of that hockey program. Uh, some of its life-changing forces likely did for the players, but when pressed for what inspired their determination and work ethic, it's almost universally Tarasov who gets the credit today. A pattern of honesty, passion, caring, and love of a very special human leader, in spite of all the things they had to deal with otherwise, um, really defined for those athletes and those great teams what hockey meant to them. Under very different circumstances, those athletes loved Tarasov. The way Sophie, Simi, and Sveri love Matt Whitcomb. The way I love Matt Whitcomb. The Soviets hid the humanness of Tarasov's love for his players and put an apparatchik in his place. And that interpretation is almost universal today. Matt Whitcomb, too, is a mensch. The Tarasov light bulb went off in my head when Matt warns us of how easily it could all go awry without integrity and stewardship and honorable people running the U.S. ski program. It turns out the secret of Matt's coaching success seems not to be much of a secret at all. In fact, Matt seems to be offering it up willingly and freely, and it's maybe the best antidote to a culture of cheating. The takeaway for me is, Matt is just who he is. And I think that's the message he wants us to understand as well, that it's not magic. We can trust our athletes a little more than, than control them. We can guide them a little more than command them. 
and integrity, honesty, passion, caring, and love go a long way in creating human successes. More importantly, in creating something lasting and meaningful. And those are all free things to all of us, if we want to use them. That's Threshold for this episode. I'm Chad Samala. Thanks for listening.